Finders New York City headquarters. I'm Adam Zeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Chabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. Guys, what's going on? How's everybody doing? Doing well. Pretty good. Yeah, yeah. It's a yeah. big, like, this has been a big kind of two-step drinking weekend, huh? You got Cinco de Mayo and the Kentucky Derby. God. Yeah. It's not Derby de Mayo, which has happened before. Derby what? It is Derby de Mayo. Derby de Mayo. Derby de Mayo. So it's when the Derby and Cinco de Mayo fall on the same oh, day. I, yep, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Also, today I was out walking around and I saw some of the signs that said, Happy Cinco de Hayo. Oh, geez. And I, and, I, and I turned and looked at him and said, you already had your holiday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a crazy weekend. So before we get into what we, got, we, what we drank, what would you both pick, julep or margarita? Ooh, mar- margarita for me. I don't love a julep, to be honest with you. Mm, yeah. Zach? I think if it was if you were asking me exactly right now, I would say a julep. Uh, but I think I drink vastly more margaritas in a year, which is perhaps unsurprising. Which is why I feel like you would say julep right now. Exactly. Exactly. You know what my problem uh, with the you? julep is is that it never feels like it's enough drink in there. It's true. <laughs> it's all ice. It is, it is it's all weird, ice. Well, you have so much ice, and yet you like if you don't like if you drink it quickly, which you kind of should. It's like gone in like four sips. And you're yeah. like, well, now I have a whole, cu- I have a, I have the world's saddest like snow cone. Yeah. Yeah. Like my problem with a julep is it also, it can, if you hold it for too long, right? So if you don't drink it quickly, it gets all that wateriness. Mm-hmm. But then if you drink it quickly, it can be like sickly sweet. Mm-hmm. And I'm not about that life either. <laughs> and I so, will say this to yeah. the julep's credit though. It is a super cool drink to watch someone who knows what they're doing make. Oh, yeah, like, totally. The technique of a julep is, like, very elaborate. And obviously, there's a lot of, like, you know, there's a lot of debate about yeah. what you do with the mint, how you incorporate it, how you, you know, perhaps garnish the drink, all that, you know, what what the proper way to serve it is. And I love that. I mean, not that watching someone make a margarita isn't fun, but, you know, like, kind of, it, it, it doesn't look, it, a, a julep is a very distinctive cocktail in several ways, and that I kind of dig. Yeah, I, I agree. think I need to watch more julep making videos then. Mm-hmm. Just don't it's a know. weekend project for you, Joanna. Yeah. It sounds, seems like it's the perfect weekend for that. Um, cool. So what have you I – mean, I didn't answer, but I think I would I'd be margarita all day long. What kind of margarita? Um, Tommy's always. <laughs> oh, Come on. We'll save that for another episode. <laughs> yeah, but uh, Zach, what, what have you been drinking lately, man? Good question. I think the, the couple things that I have had recently that I've been excited about. So um, after tasting some Madeira with Joanna on the podcast uh, mm-hmm. the past Friday, um, I had most of a bottle of Madeira left and was like, well, <laughs> as much as I enjoy sipping on this, I am going to do one of the things that we discussed, which is trying to figure out um, a cocktail that works with it. And I found what I think is a pretty fun use for the Madeira that's a kind of a cool riff on um, an existing cocktail template. And that was a, a, a mixed uh, equal parts mezcal. So I used the Adelmagay Vita, kind of a, a, you know, a very kind of representative, but but blend of, of mezcals from a couple different villages with uh, Aperol and this um, rare wine co uh, Verdello Madeira. Um, so kind of a Negroni-ish 
formulation, I mm-hmm. suppose you would say. Um, but really cool because I, I I wanted to do something with the mezcal, and I wanted something that would work really well with the kind of like cooked notes of the Madeira. And I thought kind of the smokiness, that kind of you know that the the you can kind of just get the cooking method of the agave in mezcal in a way that you can't with most tequilas or things like that. So I kind of just sort of figured that would work. And I was really pleasantly surprised at how good it was. So don't know if that's a drink that's already out there. I did a very, very cursory Google search and didn't see anything. But uh, in case anyone wants to try it, that one is mine. I made it up. And, <laughs> and just uh, like that. Don't ask me to name it. Uh, oh, that's mine. That was my next question. Just, yeah, I know. It's everyone's next question. That's why this is the worst thing about cocktail creation is naming them, at least in my opinion. Next uh, number will, two. Uh, yeah, exactly. Sure, sure. If you got it, listeners, if you have any suggestions, podcast podcastdefinepair.com. Make it <laughs> the Jabal. Try it and then send me a name. Have a ball with the Jabal. Oh, so, I like oh. that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Everyone else likes it. Yeah. And then I think the only other thing I had recently that was uh... – <laughs> it's true. It's your forte, not mine. Um, the other thing that I had recently that I thought was uh, really good, I had a really beautiful bottle of uh, white burgundy, which, you know, Adam, you and I have discussed our mutual love of a couple times on here. Yeah. But this was uh, uh, Domaine Michel Neon, uh, their uh, Chassani Montrachet Premier Cru des Chaumes, Claude de la Truffière. There's a lot of fucking words wow, to say for wow, a bottle yeah. of wine. One of Burgundy's problems, but really just a, a beautiful bottle of wine. And uh, it was a treat to share with my wife nice. after she got back awesome. from a work trip. So, yeah, that was fun. That sounds Very great. Cool. Mm-hmm. Joanna? You, Joanna? Yeah, we've been, um, I feel like we as a team have been having a lot of wonderful wine and even just in the past week from all over, including uh, Lodi, California, Chile, Argentina, Virginia. Um, and one standout for me was the Early Mountain uh, Petite Mensang, which was I, I thought was very delicious. I, I don't know. I, I feel like I haven't had a ton of Petite Mensang in the past. Um, it's not really that that prevalent. It's yeah. not super. Yeah, it's not popular, right? So um, that was really great. And then another thing that I had recently at the office was a canned tapache uh, from a brand called De La Calle. Um, and tapache is a fermented pineapple drink. For for those who don't know, um, this this one was flavored with cactus and prickly pear, um, and it was lightly sweetened with and uh, I think cane sugar and spiced with cinnamon. And that was that was very good. This is a non alcoholic drink, but um, Very cool. Yeah, that was good. What about you, Adam? Uh, so a few things. One, I got to have. So speaking of all the amazing people who've come and paid us a visit this past week, we had uh, a, a crew from Lodi in the office, mm-hmm. and I got to have a bottle of Turley uh, Old Vine Zinfandel that was just that was mind-blowingly amazing. good. Yeah, yeah. just really, really amazing. So yeah, it was so good. Uh, so that was awesome. And can I express only my only gripe with Turley, which is that they put their what? Zinfandel in like the widest bottles imaginable, and they're impossible to fit on like any kind of wine rack. <laughs> oh, I didn't, you know, I never actually had a bottle of Turley in my wine cellar, so I've not experienced that. I've only gotten <laughs> to have it out, but I can see the gripe. I can <laughs> see the gripe. Must be very frustrating. Anyway, so also this weekend, uh, I followed in Joanna's footsteps, and um, I went to Manhattan with some friends, oh. and I had the always money. And? And it was fucking awesome. So good. It was by far the favorite cocktail I had there. Oh, um, nice. I had a few others, but that one was really, you know, like tried other people's and things like that. But that one was really good, and my wife tried to steal it. So you always know that you, like, made the best cocktail order when your significant other's like, I'd like yours. <laughs> um, so that was great. Yeah. And then the last thing I drank this week was 
So Aaron Goldfarb lost a bet to me because he doesn't mm-hmm. know sports. No, he does. <laughs> but uh, but anyways, he, Wait, I what was the bet? A bet. Come on, you can't. You you got to explain. So early on in the basketball season, um, Syracuse played Auburn, okay. and. Aaron is a very cocky individual, and so he decided to, like, text me and be like, oh, Syracuse is going to beat Auburn, even though, first of all, Auburn actually has a good basketball team, and Syracuse is just living in the past of what when they used to be good. But I think Aaron forgets because he's so old that he went to college, like, 30 years ago. Anyways, <laughs> so uh, Aaron lost a bet to me, and I know he's going to listen to this because his mom has a Google alert on him, so he's going to know that <laughs> oh I gosh. talked about him. So anyways... Uh, Aaron basically uh, and I went to Papina, which is a really great Italian restaurant uh, in um, Brooklyn on the Columbia waterfront. And I was just perusing the list and I was like, well, you lost the bet. He's like, yeah, man, whatever you need to do. And so I asked for the seller list <laughs> and they had a bottle of Ruana Barbaresco. And so I bought it. <laughs> he bought it. And it was very, very good, um, which is really crazy because I had a different bottle of Aranya a few months ago with Keith, actually. And I was we both weren't as impressed with it. But this one was just like, I don't know if maybe then that shows that the last bottle we had just wasn't, you know, in great condition or whatever. I mean, this was an amazing wine. Um, and I really enjoyed that. So nice. that was uh, th- that was what I drank this week. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Aaron. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, if you'd so, like to make any sports bets with me, I'm happy to uh, discuss. Yeah, I mean, you know, we have to we have to figure out how we cash in because you know the, the, I don't like to bet money, so um, just, <laughs> just just barter. Okay, yeah, cool. it's fun to like you know I bet a dinner or bet a you know a, a night out at a bar or something. So it was gotcha. it was a lot more fun. I also can get way more out of hand that way, but I tried to be respectful. <laughs> I tried to be respectful. Um, so this week we decided. We would have a conversation about something that we've been seeing pop up a lot recently. And that is there seems to be across the board, right? I'm seeing it in like the the regular sort of world of wine. You're also seeing it a lot in natural wine. Um, obviously, it's existed forever in Champagne. So those mm-hmm. who know where we're going know it's these multi-vintage wines that are basically coming out of nowhere but seem to be like everywhere nowadays – um, and a lot of it is, you know, and it depends on who you talk to. I think that's what's interesting about them is like, if you talk to natural wine producers, it's like, oh, this is a cool way to, you know, highlight different vintages and yada, 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 blah, blah. You talk to sort of more established winemakers who are making these wines and they'll say it's a way to protect against like the massive vintage variations they're experiencing, especially in California. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm yeah. seeing a lot of them come from California of like, you know, what happens if we are stuck in another drought or we have more fires or things like that. Mm-hmm. And it's the way that they're sort of hedging their bets against it. But the case is that there's a lot of it now. And I'm kind of curious both if either of you have had these wines and then also sort of what you think of them. Like what's well, what's the hot take here? Like do we like this? Do we think this is good for wine? Do we think this is not good for wine? You know, how do we think the public is going to re- react to this idea of these multi-vintage wines all of a sudden? Because obviously we, we've done multi-vintage forever, as I said, in Champagne. But I don't – you know, consumers are used to seeing a year on the bottle of regular still wine. Mm-hmm. So I'm really curious where this all goes and thought it would be a fun conversation to have. Yeah. I guess one question I have about this is, so the opposition to multi-vintage wines is that it kind of does away with terroir, right? That's the big issue. It's one of them. I mean, I think, I think could be, could be. I think it also kind of changes the, I don't know. I mean, look, 
I don't know how I feel about these things. I'm I might be showing my hand a little bit too early on in the conversation. <laughs> um, I think it, you know for some consumers it ruins the romanticism of like wine, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like you're drinking a specific year and like everything that happened in that year and like what the what what was happening in the world and in the environment and the fact that that wine could only be made in that year is something that's very sort of ro- always romanticized about wine mm-hmm. and so this sort of at least to me starts to put wine more in the discussion of like bourbons and other kinds of spirits that are blended over different kinds of years and again i get that we've always almost this was champagne right so if you want to come for me come for me but i think in the world of still wine it is a very new idea and one that i'm not sure how i feel about yet i mean i don't know i i think we've had this conversation before, but I also think that many consumers don't really care about vintage. I think serious fine yeah, wine lovers do. But I also think that there will be plenty of winemakers that never explore multi-vintage wines. So I think for mm. winemakers where the prestige of a vintage isn't really important or for really small wineries where crop issues can be particularly devastating to them, I think multi-vintage wines could be really valuable, mm-hmm. um, especially if the wines they're making are good. And That's I think a great point. I think if it's like consistent, consistently good wine, and it's reliable for a winemaker, then I think it's a good thing. Well, and I think it comes to a little bit of something that Adam was mentioning a moment ago, and it, and it almost comes to this question of like, what do you want out of wine, right? right. As a as a consumer, mm-hmm. right? So so is what you <clears throat> is what you want out of wine a specific flavor profile? Um, whether that flavor profile is you know the sort of natty profile or something totally different or whatever. And if what you're looking for is mostly the flavor profile and all that, then multi-vintage wine makes a lot of sense for a winery. As explained, it helps kind of inure you to um, crop shortages. It also allows Mm -hmm. you to do more with a bumper crop in certain other years. You know, California saw this really um, severely with 2018, which was a really, really large crop. Um, And, you know, you don't necessarily want to vinify and sell all the wine you make in a year where you get a lot of crop because it's going to push the, you know, it's going to you know sort of lower the price it's you're gonna have problems getting you know selling wine and if you could hold on to some of that as reserve wine such as it was and blend that out over the next five years Mm -hmm. kind of essentially supplementing uh smaller vintages additionally it also kind of just ensures you a more consistent flow of products into the market so there's a lot of you know things to recommend it's and and as adam has pointed out it's why champagne and other sparkling wine Mm -hmm. regions have traditionally done this for a variety of reasons some of it is uh consistency of flavor, but also as that insurance against um, bad or or short crops. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in addition to the romanticism that comes with uh, a vintage and the idea that, you know, these grapes were grown in this place at this time in this year, and, and we can sort of attest to that in a very, very meaningful way. I also think that there are just a lot of wine styles that don't really work as multi-vintage wines. Mm-hmm. I mean, your sort of fresher styles of white wine, rosé, even red wines, you know, I don't want two, three, four-year-old wines being blended in there. How are those wines being stored? Like, is that vinified wine being kept in barrel? Well, that's dramatically changing its profile. Is it being kept in stainless steel tanks? Okay, well, maybe that's not changing the profile, but are you losing some of the uh, sort of freshness and vivacity of the wine to say nothing of what it costs for a winery to store wine year after year. I mean, storage of wine is a very big expense for any winery. And if you're storing wines that are sort of, you know, you're going to have to put them in a temperature controlled, airtight stainless steel tank for three years to be able to blend them in. Again, that's a big barrier. So so I think... But if that's wine you would have lost otherwise, or maybe, you know, wouldn't have sold or whatever, isn't it it better? 
Uh, depends on how much you pay for that tank, right. to be completely honest. I mean, those things are not cheap. Mm-hmm. And the, the, all the cost that goes into maintaining them and keeping them operational and stuff is not small. And so I, I think that we're definitely going to see more of it. I'm very curious to see if you start to see any of the really like kind of high-end producers. You know, mm-hmm. we've talked well, we recently on the podcast about cult wines and luxury wines and all these categories. And and it's one thing to put a $20 multi-vintage wine out there. You know, certainly lots of the really well-known grocery store wines are multi-vintage, or at least they're not vineyard, uh, not vintage designated, which makes right. me assume that they are some kind of blend of multiple vintages. And that's fine, right? And those wines can be quite good and they can meet a, a really meaningful consumer demand. But if you're talking about, you know, higher end Napa Cabernet mm-hmm. being bottled and sold as non-vintage or multi-vintage, I don't I, – I think someone will do it. I mean I think someone will have to do it because I think as discussed, some of these regions are going to just come across – come up with – you know, they're going to come across vintage after vintage where there are maybe various and different challenges and making a vintage wine every year is just not quite an option. And maybe you have the champagne model where certain vintages you make a vintage wine and other years you just are selling, you know – Napa Winery X, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon, and it doesn't have a vintage date attached mm-hmm. to it. But someone's going to have to really kind of splash into that pool, and, and we haven't seen it yet, and I, I don't know who wants to be first. But I think brands will do that under another brand. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, we've I seen that. That's happen. happening, right? Yeah, That's- we are. Yeah, that is happening. We are seeing that. Like some of the, the higher end wineries are saying, well, you know, we have access to this these wines. We have access to the we have the ability to make them. So let's let's create these wines in you know under different brands for sure. We're definitely seeing that. Um, I think that what Zach said is really interesting about it only being applicable to certain styles um, because oh, I can't believe I'm saying this. I do agree with that. I know I just was fucking around today um it is I do think though it's true I mean like I think you know very fresh whites you know some of these like Pinot like I, I can't see a, a a beautiful Gamay or Pinot Noir doing really well multi-vintage but I can see red blends doing very well you know I can see Zinfandel sure. I can see Cabernet um especially mm-hmm. again to hit a price point that consumers are already hoping to pay for those kinds of wines. And again, I I don't, you know, I'm coming into this having not fully looked at what all the regulations are, but Mm. I, you know, if you are, I'm not sure, like if you're still allowed to say Napa on the bottle, if it's multi-vintage, but if you are, and that allows a producer to hit a a lower price point, Mm -hmm. and we all know that Napa is a name that sells, right? It's a massive, massively successful marketing term at this point for wine, then that is something that allows other people access to quote unquote Napa wines at maybe a $30 price point because it is wines that were blended over multiple, multiple vintages. Um, On the high end, I think it could work for some of these Napa Cabernet producers, especially the ones that make the big cult wines that are basically oaked out anyways. Mm -hmm. Right. So those wines could also potentially still exist here. Now, again, I don't know if that's going to work for the, for our generation of wine consumer who doesn't really love that style of wines, but you know, there's always going to be a buyer for that style. And if that allows again, some of these wineries to be able to, you know, be in existence in years when there's going to continue to be fires in California, right. then that's also interesting. I also do think we're not, I, I, I really do think we're going to only see multi-vintage wines in basically two areas of wine. I think we're going to see multi-vintage wines 
in and, and this is not to talk about luxury or or affordable wines at this point. It's just I think two regions. Regions that are affected massively right. by climate climate issues, right? So California, you know, I just I can't see this happening in Bordeaux, but places that are, that are having is gonna be a huge like they're getting a hammered almost worse than anyone, but I also find it very hard to see the Burgundians doing this right yeah but california will especially i think new world regions right like regions that are sort of open to this and then i think we're also going to see it in natural wine because mm-hmm. we already are seeing it in natural wine because again and i don't think know, people we, look for vintage in natural wine though no they're looking for the flavor profile right so mm-hmm. if if you can achieve that same flavor profile of sort of that the the, the kombucha-esque then mm-hmm. i don't think the consumer is going to really care right like it's got a really cool label and it is cloudy and it has this, it has the flavors they're looking for. What do they care if it's four or five vintages that went in to make that? And I think that's really interesting because like the way, the reason that I think multi-vintage champagne works is first of all, the older wines are adding some character, but then second, they're, they're developed. The entire wine is developing so much complexity because it sits on the leaves for so long and the leaves are imparting a specific kind of flavor, right? Mm-hmm. It's the brioche we always talk about. Well, that's actually what's happening in natural wine when you're in, in, you know, when bacteria is getting involved. So if we have all of a sudden retinomyces and it's, you know, creating all of these, these sour notes that, that probably won't matter, it it, matter. that some yeah. of the wine is from a few vintages ago. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think that that's, that could be really interesting as well. And again, we, that's why I think we're already seeing it in, in uh you know, natural wine. Mm-hmm. Well, and especially because in natural wine, you've also seen a lot of, um, you know, producers kind of issue traditional notions about, like what varieties go well together or, um, you know, sticking, sticking to uh, site specificity. Like you see some really popular natural wines that are blends from across California. And again, that's not something that's only in natural wine. You see that in, in very commercial wines as well. But I think you're right that, that <clears throat> there is not the same interest in some of these kind of classic indicators of quality in wine. Right. I, I you know, I think, I think ultimately, you know, Joanna, what you said is very true. Ultimately, it's a good thing, right? It it if it, it's going to allow for people to access wines at an affordable price, it's going to allow producers to be able to recover when vintages are bad, especially mm-hmm. producers who create this a second label of these wines in order to still be able to make their you know their their fine vintage wines, but then not be completely lost when those vintages fail. I think it's a really interesting thing. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I'll probably just have to get over the fact that all wine doesn't have to be vintage. Um, You know, I got into wine and and the romanticism of wine. I love the idea of, uh, you know, drinking a year and thinking about that year and all those amazing things that we all do. But then the more, but when I do think about it, I even don't look at vintage all the time. Right. Mm -hmm. If I really looked at vintage, you know, I would, um, then, then I would always be like, okay, like, what would I, you know, how would I treat all these different, you know, vintages and which one was better and maybe I should buy off the list that way. And I actually never do. Like when I'm, even when I'm buying really nice wines off a list, I usually never like, oh, like shit. Like say a like, Rowania Barbaresco. Yeah, I didn't even think about the, what the vintage was. I was like, you're paying for this. <laughs> so I, I think, and, and you know, there's always been those those statements people made like, there's no bad vintages, only bad winemakers, which – you know, I think is also a very true thing. Like any winemaker can make good wine in a good vintage. It takes a great winemaker to make great wine in a bad vintage. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think, 
you know, that's really true as well. So that's why so many people then don't pay attention to vintage. So well, this is all just an evolution. And, you know, Keith's reminding me here that, you know, Shin Estates, which doesn't exist anymore, but in, in on the North Fork, they were making a non-vintage wine years ago, years and years and years ago. And again, it's because the North Fork wasn't always dope, right? Some years it had good vintages and other years it had terrible vintages because it's on the North Fork of Long Island. <laughs> like, you know, it's just not an amazing place to grow grapes. Yet here we are. But uh, but yeah, they're going to come for me now. But, uh, <laughs> but I mean, I think that that's something that is why, you know, that's why they did that. They were really, really smart. And it's a very entrepreneurial idea. So I'm here for it, I guess. I, I, I just think that the the vintage wines are not going to go away, though, right? Yeah, they're not. And because if you want people to pay that much for your wine, like, it has to be special that way. Well, I think you're right that, that you'll see maybe more wineries dip their toe into whether it's a second label yeah. or sort of their mm-hmm. entry-level priced wine. Might More of those might become multi-vintage wines. Uh, but I think you're right that, that for most of the top end of the market – you know, for whether whether totally justifiable or not, people associate quality in still wine with a lot of things. They include it with sometimes, you know, varietal designation. They certainly, you know, uh, appellation and they they associate it with a vintage dated wine. Of course. And, and yeah. I think that's just a hard thing to you're not going to change people's minds in a few years. But maybe if some of these multi vintage wines become a little bit more common, more of the so like I said, sort of the entry level wines for some of these wineries are multi vintage wines, then maybe you start to see that approach spread beyond just the entry-level price point. Right. And like, look, right now, we don't have enough data or proof that would show that like a, a wine that's held in cellar for 25 years before being blended into a multi-vintage bottle is amazing. Maybe it is, right? Maybe someone should try that. Mm-hmm. We now know that in the world of like, brown spirits, right? We know in whiskey, we know in cognac that like as these these liquids develop in barrel, they get more complex and so that's why we're willing to pay for these blend, these multi-vintage, you know, whiskies and cognacs where some of the liquids 5 years old and some of the liquids 23 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we don't know what would happen in wine. Who know, who knows if it would be good? It could be completely terrible. Um, but I think that that's also why until we know that it's always going to be the priority on really old vintage wine when it comes to the collection market, mm-hmm. the speculation market, all of that stuff, because that is we can assign a value to that. We've been assigning a value to that for centuries. Right. So, all right. Well, uh, I hope everyone had an amazing weekend. Great start to your Monday, and we'll see you guys here on Friday. See you then. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tastings Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.